Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today, we'd like to talk to you about what I call a product ladder, but it's really a product service ladder, an offering ladder, if you will. Yes, yes. And I would have sworn we've talked about this in the past. I think it, it's a topic that just comes up with some regularity, but uh, we didn't see one, so hopefully <laughs> this isn't a redo. But uh, yeah, it's, it's something that I think... Um, would be good to do a full episode on. So, Rochelle, is this is this a general term or is it something I made up? I I think it's a general term. I mean, okay. I've used I you know I call it product service ladder yep. instead of product ladder. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think consultants and, and and freelancers and people building businesses around their expertise think of it this way. Okay, cool. So I honestly couldn't remember if it was is something I've been talking about for so long. I didn't. I was like, is this is this something I thought of or is this just floating around <laughs> in the ether? So the, the general concept for, you know, for me, I'll sort of give you my definition and then you can kind of add to it. But for me, it's basically an outgrowth of working with software developers who generally offer one thing and that is, you know, their time by the hour to build custom software. So they'll, they'll mm-hmm. rent themselves out by the hour to build custom software. We'll code for money. And to me, that's honestly, um, for them, for someone in that situation, that's actually the very highest rung of the ladder. They, so they have this, this ladder of one option, and it's way at the top. Mm-hmm. And I work with them to build rungs beneath it so that they can offer, you know, they can price themselves differently. They can position different things differently. They can attract different uh as you know, areas of the market, so high end, low end, middle end, middle end, mm-hmm. and they can uh, ha- just just build a, a funnel. There's all these things that you can do when you're not just selling custom project work. And we probably talked about this a lot on the leverage episode because that's to me that's uh, a big piece of it is being able to take your expertise and package it up in ways that make more sense or more obvious to different kinds of buyers and Mm -hmm. you can price in a very different way because they have a completely different cost and delivery structure and sales cycle usually right right so you can price something that is well we can get into it but is that sort of i mean is that sort of the general definition of what we're talking about well i i think so i mean i you know from my practice i think of it in sort of four general kinds of rungs. And the first one is what I would call consulting. It could be coaching, um, it could be, you know, freelancing for hire, but it's, you know, it's mostly one-to-one. Um, it could be one-to-group, but that starts to become another rung on the ladder, yes. mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, and then speaking, um, uh, programs, which are, you know, like training programs, you know, I mean, you can deliver them a lot of different ways. And then books or, you know, something that is book-like, mm-hmm. where it's a very discreet piece of something that you sell and they, you know, they take it and go away. Mm-hmm. So I tend to think of it as, you know, some, it doesn't mean that there's four rungs on every ladder. There could be 10 rungs. There could be two. Um, but that, that's how I kind of think about getting the rungs, defining them. Yep. Yeah. So I, I see it very similarly and, and in those rough groupings, pretty much the same way. Um, there, there's a, there's some wackiness with whether or not you're doing 
sort of for developers, it comes up a lot that they're doing support implementation types of things, which can be tough to extend into different rungs. They almost become a rung unto themselves. Yeah. And good to see that. Yeah. And so I work with them to figure out the pieces of their sort of the skill, the strategic, highly skilled expertise areas of their coding. So like they, they do execution work, they do implementation work, but there's some things where their opinion is important to the client, where their advice Mm -hmm. and they get into those sorts of conversations with people. And so I, I have them go through their past, you know, dev engagements and be like, where, where did people ask for your opinion? When were you getting pulled into meetings for people to pick your brain? And what are those sorts of things? And let's pull those out of, you know, your implementation work. So let's say you're going to continue to do implementation work. Let's pull those things out and make them discrete offerings. Like, you know, the classic case is a road mapping example, or like a system architecture or um, a, a style guide, if you're more on the design side of the fence mm-hmm. and say, this is probably something that you give away all the time. You probably don't even charge for it. If you do charge for it, it's by the hour. But it's a preliminary, it's a preliminary thing. You know, I'm sure we talked to Blair on uh, his interview about this uh, because he's got this sort of framework where he thinks of, he thinks of the types of work in four phases of the client engagement where it starts off diagnostic and prescriptive and then application, which would be building stuff and then reapplication, which would be support. Mm-hmm. So I, I work with people to try. So right now, let's say, dear listener, you're you're coding for money. You build Rails apps for you know people to to spec. They say, hey, we need this Rails app that does this thing. We heard you're really good. What's your hourly rate? Great. Okay, can you build it for us? So if you think about that and you want to start to build out a product ladder, the first thing I would look for is is to look back at your engagements and look at the beginning of the engagements and see if you. Is there some kind of kickoff meeting? Is there some sort of some sort of brainstorming or, or whiteboarding or some kind of back and forth that you have with the client? If so, if you notice that you do that a lot, that could be that could be something that you pull into its own sort of engagement that I usually just call road mapping. It's not always a roadmap, but mm-hmm. but that sort of thing. A preliminary strategic engagement that is uh, perhaps just diagnostic, but could also be prescriptive. And those are usually pretty high value considering how they're like usually low cost and high value. So there's usually a big margin in between how much it takes out of you, how much work you have to do, how much it costs you to do one of these things and how valuable it is to the client because it's based yes. strictly on your expertise and not how much time, you know, you're not seat warming. It's it's like, yeah, figure it's this strategic. out and tell us what to do. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's usually the first place I look when I when I uh, get people who are essentially software developers for hire. Um, you know, what about so? But you you work with a lot of different kinds of people. So how does it usually start to grow? Like when someone comes to you, what things do they usually? What rungs do they usually already have? And like where do they go from there to fill in the blank spots? Is there a pattern? Yeah. Well. Yes and no. I mean, the I think the pattern for me is usually that that they're consulting. Obviously, they have that they have a successful business. I mean, you know, I'm thinking of of an example of somebody that I worked with where they had uh, they worked on a project basis, not retainer, um, mm-hmm. and it wasn't you know a freelance. It was really more of a of a where where she came in and specified what would be done, very consultative, 
And her projects would run maybe 25 grand a piece. So in a typical year, she could do, you know, a good year would be five to 10 projects. So she'd, you know, make 150, 200,000, something like that. But in, in her particular case with the work she did, once she was done, she didn't have anything else to offer them. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was literally, you know, we went through that kind of the process you just described um, on steroids. And there, was, there really wasn't anything to continue to offer them. But what she wanted to do is to figure out a way to keep them warm as referrals and to keep attracting you know, new fans, new potential clients. And so I, I call that keeping your fan base in motion, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, what we looked at was what else could she create? And just as an as a really simple example, her work didn't lend itself to group work necessarily. So she could do, you know, a book at the opposite end of the ladder, which is a cheap from the client's perspective way to kind of keep in touch and pass around her knowledge base um, or she, and or she could also do some sort of digital training. And we looked at everything from something that looked like, you know, $250 to something that looked like $2,500. And I think the answer is unique for each person, depending on, you know, the client base they're serving, the budgets, um, you know, what they can earn for their expertise. But it's that it's filling out those those spots. Um, you know, the, I think the other thing is that typically a lot of people who are really good at a particular topic, they've got a big idea, they've honed their expertise, they've got a successful business, although they may feel like they're on the hamster wheel, but they, you know, they're making money, right? They're becoming known. That's when they really start to look at what do I do? Do I want to do speaking? Do I want to do programs? What kind of an audience do I have to build for that? And of course, you know, we've talked about this in our other episodes is, you know, the book. Should I do a book? What's the purpose of the book? What's the role of the book in my product service ladder? And, you know, and is it worth my time? Because the book is not an idle investment of your time. No. Yeah, exactly. And so that's what my, so I feel like the way that I build product ladders or I, I help people build product ladders is actually backwards. Uh, but it's practical. So because they already do probably one of the most, the, 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 the highest ticket thing is probably the thing that they already offer. It's not the most profitable thing, probably in terms of percentage, you know, profit margin, mm-hmm. but it's probably the highest ticket. So if you're doing custom software development, you're, you know, you're, you're not going to pr- almost certainly, you're not going to build a rung under that or even over it. That's more, revenue but it, you could build one that's less revenue you know price but really really a lot cheaper for you to deliver so it'd be more highly mm-hmm. profitable so right. it uh, but the thing that comes into it is that when people are sort of at this phase where they fell into freelancing and they've been like you said they're they're doing okay they're making money they're, but they're on the hamster wheel and they don't know what to do next they're usually not prepared it, it would usually feel very risky to me to go straight to like the bottom rung and do a book because I wouldn't, unless, unless, you know, it's usually the case that they don't know what the book should be about or who it would be for, or, you know, like if, you know, oh, I've got five ideas, I don't know which one to do. So that when I see that, I'm like, no, 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 don't, don't do a book then because there's just too many, too high a likelihood that you're going to, pivot away from whatever the thing is, whatever book you write, you spend all the six months to write this book and then you pivot away from it in, you know, two months after it comes out and it was just a giant mm-hmm. waste of time. Right. So I want people to have their identity really 
firmly baked before they invest that much time into something like that and instead would look for what my friend Philip Morgan calls sawdust that is already laying around. It's already stuff that you have. It's that you maybe already have assets. You maybe already have videos. You maybe already have blog posts and sort of, uh, and you certainly have some skill that you do with your hands. So let's start there. We know you have that. It's not a huge ramp up to create a new thing and create like a, a productized service, like a roadmap or something, something like that. That's that the, the student's confidence is very high that they could do that day one. Like, oh yeah, yeah. All we really need to do is write a sales page for it. I, mm-hmm. I, I do this already. It's just a different way of talking about it, or it's a very particular phase of a project. Uh, it, you know, there's a million examples, but it, it's usually something that's very, uh, very, just a short amount of time to execute maybe a few hours over the course of a week or two. And you can price it, depending on the thing, you can price it, you know, low four figures, sometimes even into the five figures. And I even have a couple of couple of examples I can think of that can go into a six-figure engagement for one day. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's amazing. But the, the idea is, I try to be practical about it and say, okay, let's work with what we, we have. You already know you have it. You already have these assets. And let's just try and package it up differently, present it differently on your website, talk about it differently and try to put together a funnel that will lead to that thing because it's a gigantic mental shift going from doing custom doing proposals for custom project work and the whole sales cycle and lead generation around that kind of a sale versus having a clearly described product with a price Mm -hmm. on your site here it is this is how much it costs if you want this hamburger here's how much it is if you don't want the hamburger don't buy it. So there's no sales conversation, really. There'll probably be a little bit of back and forth, but the price is already on the table. So it's just completely different. It's so much easier from a sales standpoint, and it becomes an exercise in creating awareness and trust, not negotiating and closing. So it's, it's a very different thing. And so what I like to do is, is expose people to that in with the least amount of ramp up possible. And so that usually turns into like a productized service. Like here's a particular high touch service that we will deliver in a high touch way, but we will sell it in a very low touch way like a product would be. Because I think the key with the success of that, because I like the approach of it's low hanging fruit. Um, It's the first time I've heard sawdust. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I like the, the concept. And I think the key is that is is the audience for this new service, because the more it's either like the audience you already know, or very similar, and you just have to change how you build the funnel, mm-hmm. then it, it feels more comfortable, it feels more natural, it feels more logical, it feels less risky to the person, which and all of those things to me mean there's a higher likelihood that it will be successful. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of resistance if there's, if they, if, if for some reason we identify, you know, a better target market than the one that they're currently going after, but it's different, it's mm-hmm. poof, it, it's pretty common for that to flame out because there's like just tons of imposter syndrome. I don't know how to talk to these people. I'm not part of their tribe. I don't know what they, I don't get it. I don't understand their language. So it's like, yeah, okay, you know, maybe doctors is your ideal target market. But if if we just pulled that out of the blue, you know, not pulled out of the blue, but if we just discovered that as a possibility because you did a little bit of market research and you found perhaps a really rich vein, it still 
for a lot of people, it's like, yeah, but <laughs> it's way outside of their comfort zone and it get a lot of resistance. Well, it's, it's like that, the idea of pivoting, you know, and I think pivots can be hard for people, harder for some than others. And a lot of the work that I do on pivots is we're doubling down in a niche. And it's, it's always interesting to me how scary that feels to people. So, you know, gee, it's not that you're working with chemists today and you're going to go work with engineers tomorrow, right? Mm -hmm. But that you're working with um, professionals, let's say, and you're going to narrow it to uh, C-suite of companies uh, of in the technology industry that are, I don't know, 20 million to 200 million, something like that. It's a, it's a, it's a pivot. It's a small pivot. But that still can feel scary to somebody who's who feels like they're leaving things on the table. Yep, absolutely. So let's talk about a rung down from there. So, so well, actually, I want to I want to kind of I didn't I forgot to finish the idea of of about I tend to work with people who start at the top rung and work their way down. I mm -hmm. think it's actually for for somebody who maybe is at a, say a full-time job and is thinking about going out on their own or they have some big idea that they want to work on or something like that. I think it's probably a lot smarter and safer to start at the bottom and work your way up. So I just wanted to put that out there, but what do you think about that? Well, it's funny you say that because, uh, there's one client in actually, I guess two in particular, but one, it was just amazing where we started at number four. Mm -hmm. Now, to be fair, this was not you know, his first rodeo. All right. He'd okay. been successful in other businesses, but it, it, they had a, a book and they had this idea that maybe they could create a business around the book. And so they hired me to work with them and the book was already written. Um, it was already, they were just getting ready to go on their, their book tour for this book. And it was actually their second book and they each had other careers were doing other things. And so what I helped them do was to really hone it and articulate it and work up the ladder. Mm. I mean, they literally didn't know how to create a consulting service. And so I worked with them and, 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 you know, they were speaking for free. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 no. So, so that's what we started to do. And so it was in the case of speaking, it was things that they were doing anyway. And it was, how do you price it and make it attractive to your target audience? They weren't interested in doing programs. Um, but they did want to do a very particular kind of, uh, we called it parachute consulting, where, you know, you come in, you work for a day, two days maximum, and you're done. Mm -hmm. None of this long relationship <laughs> slide. They didn't, they weren't interested in doing that. And so, yeah, so we worked backwards and it was fascinating to do it that way. And we had, we had a hundred thousand dollars at the end of the first year, which, yeah. you know, starting from zero, I, I was pretty pleased with that. Sure. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know if I would call that backwards. I think that's the, so, so like the idea of taking a, a small idea and working it into a bigger, bigger and bigger engagements, I think is the, maybe let's call it the idealistic way. I don't know if it's better or worse, but to me, that's the ideal, sort of the ideal. So I, let's mm -hmm. say I'm, I'm at my day job or whatever, and I've got this side hustle. I'm not going to run out and write a book, but I could write or create some piece of content that I believe is valuable and just give it to 10 people that I think would value it and, you know, have my contact information and see if it spreads, see if it, see if they share it with other people like them. And, mm -hmm. and then like, it's sort of, if it doesn't, 
I need to do a better one. But it's just small bits of work, maybe the kinds of things you can do in a week or two, you know, in your free time. Right. And just put something together, put it in the world, see if it gets any traction, see if it gets any shares, see if people start emailing you about it. And and if they don't, it might not be that your idea is bad. It might be that you haven't figured out either how to talk about it or how to phrase Mm. it or you haven't Mm -hmm. haven't connected with people, the right people yet. So and those two things can kind of kind of be two sides of the same coin. It's like who who does somebody care about this? And if they do, how do I how do I help them recognize that this is the thing they're looking for? And once you have that, it's I love that I love the description that you just had. It's like, okay, here's here's this piece of content. It's got traction. It's I've got proof that people care about it. And you sort of build it up into after that some kind of pro you know, like you said, the same thing. With developers, mm-hmm. it's usually like They've got some kind of book. It's a software book. And it depends if they're going down the training path or the consulting path. But uh, the training path is easy one, easy one to describe where they write a, a book on a horizontal specialty, specialty like whatever, jQuery or D3 or React. And then they do a video course on it, you know, sell it to the same people. But it's, you know, 10x more expensive than the book. And then they say, okay, let's do like workshops that, you know, with seats or whatever, it's going to be like, that sort of one to group type of thing, but in person mm-hmm. and, you know, another 10 X, you know, maybe a thousand dollars a seat and sell 20 seats and, you know, up it to really high level, uh, consulting engagements where perhaps you're not called in to do like write the code that you wrote about in the book, but you're there to perhaps train their devs internally, or you're there to audit mm-hmm. their code base, or you're there to help them migrate to give them advice about migrating from an old code base to the new code base or to make the, the, let's say it's React and you're familiar with React and you're an expert at that, make that play nice with some of their other code that's maybe not, not based on the same kind of framework or library and just be like, well, here's what I would do if I were you. You know, these are the, these are the risks. These are the pros and cons. And here's how I would go about it. See you later. Bye. Thanks. Well, I, I think a lot of that is I'm listening to you talk about programs that I've never heard of <laughs> <laughs> software programming. You know, I think that a lot of this depends on how you're wired. What do you want to spend your time doing? Because chances are whatever your consulting or development work that there are um, particular aspects of it that are particularly strategic, um, really valuable to the client. And you might find that your clients, you know, if you look at a, a project and, and you think 100% of it is is all fabulous, but the client looks at it and says, what I really valued was this 10% piece. Right. And let's also assume for the moment that that 10% piece happens to be what you love and you do the other 90% to get to the 10, <laughs> right? There is a message there. Yeah. Um. And, and you can start, it's, you know, I think of this as always in motion, right? Because you can start in that direction. It doesn't mean it changes your work overnight, but it can change it pretty fast. If you start to describe it differently, if you start to look for the clients that value that most, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you align your products and services with what you really not only love to do, but do really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a related concept here that, that, we haven't said out loud yet, but here we go. The, <laughs> the, the beauty of having a product ladder is that it presents, it's not just a menu of options that are like 
all roughly the same price. It can be, it can, it can turn into sort of more of a matrix than a ladder, but I specifically like the ladder metaphor because I picture the lower price uh, options at the bottom and the highest price options at the top. And as people, as your audience or as your, as your uh, awareness in the marketplace is rising, uh, you know, about you, people are going to have a certain level of trust and and at the very lowest levels of trust, when they've just heard of you, they might not be willing to give you a dime for anything that you offer, but they might give you an email address. Mm-hmm. And then now they're on your list and then you can build up more trust. And once you build up a little bit more trust, then maybe they'll say, you know, this guy does know what he's talking about. This gal does know what she's talking about. I am going to buy that book. And then they buy the book and then they read the book and then they're like, oh, I had like three light bulb moments. That book paid for itself in the first chapter. <laughs> this person's really got it going on. And, you know, in your, and of course there'll be an army of other people on your mailing list who fall off the, they go by the wayside because you're not clicking with them. But they're, for those people with whom you click, they're going to keep climbing up that ladder. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, they can, it, sometimes they leap up. Sometimes, you know, once they read the book, they're like, this is the person and go straight to the top. That happened to me for a long time in, in, uh, when I was doing mobile consulting, but I, to be honest, I didn't really offer anything in the middle. They had no choice, but to like start with the book and jump <laughs> to the top. So, uh, there was no middle ground. There was a, a little, but not that, not too seriously. I did some training, um, which was, which was nice. It was like nice middle rung, but it was a different audience for, than for the consulting. Mm-hmm. But so if you, one of the things to think about is that you want to, if you've got this audience, whatever it is, maybe it's an email list, maybe you're speaking in front of a a crowd at an event, whatever it is, but people are hearing your message. You want to give them a a wide range of price points at which to engage you or engage with you. So they're like, okay, I trust this person 10 bucks worth. (laughs) (laughs) I don't trust this person with 10,000 bucks yet, but I trust them with 10 bucks. It's yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get a positive ROI if I buy this book Mm -hmm. for 10 bucks or whatever. And if you deliver positive ROI on that purchase, that first purchase they make, whether it's with an email or with dollars or, or with coming to see you on a Friday night, then it's going, they're going to be like, Oh, that was a, that was a net gain. That was, that was more that was worth more than I spent, whether it was time, money or, or attention. And they can keep climbing up the ladder. So when you just have that very top rung, it's a lot more of a, it's a lot more unpredictable for the seller. So the person who's offering the services, they're just mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, I don't know where clients come from. They just come out of the woodwork is like swinging in on a vine and like, boom, <laughs> help me, you know, it, like out of nowhere. And they don't, it, it's, they don't have any kind of, any kind of pipeline. I mean, that's comical. Like I've talked to people who get like two or three leads a year mm-hmm. and they're like, yeah, they just show up. And I guess it was a referral. It's usually, re- that's usually a referral. They show up out of nowhere. They, you know, yeah. it's some kind of referral or they saw them on Twitter and went to their website and they were, but the, the client hasn't had a chance really to build up much trust. They just, they're probably desperate or something. And they have some reason to believe that this person is, maybe the right fit and they're very they can be pretty price sensitive because they're nervous but if somebody's been on your list for two years and read you know a book or two of yours or they've read a book and they've gone through a video course or they've seen you speak you know some combination of lower rungs in the ladder when they're ready to jump to the top there's no 
discussion. I mean, they're boom. like, I'm finally ready. Let's go. Yeah. It's and a boom. Yeah. It's boom. It's like, can you start right now? Mm-hmm. And it gives yes. you, it gives you all kinds of control that, that if you only have one, one rung and it's the top one, it gives you levers to move when you want to, you know, scare up some revenue, scare up some, uh, whatever you just want to do some business. All right. Have some kind of promotion, have some sort of special event. Right. And right. announce it to this group of people who are reasonably interested in what you have to say. And it's going to shake people out of the woodwork or it's going to nudge people up to that next rung. And you, it's not just this like, you know, spray and pray ap- approach where you're just like, uh, you know, twice a year <laughs> you panic because you have no projects lined up and you email everyone in your contact list desperately. That's kind of classic. Yeah, that's what I think of as freelancer behavior. Because mm. um, when you when you said, oh, gee, I, we haven't voiced this yet. What I thought you were going to say was that by creating that ladder, you've created a business. It's a leverageable business, mm-hmm. right? So it's more than just you. And it's I love the concept of building trust as you work your way up the ladder. But the other part of it is you've got ways to make money besides you know sweating it out with with client X. Absolutely. Right. I, I just can't tell you how important that is sometimes for your sanity. Even if you're a person who just loves the one to one client service, your business will be served if you have more options than that. Yeah. Diversifying your product mix is one of my favorite things that's happened that that I've experienced in the last few years. And it's it's just so you know, I still consider myself, I mean, now I consider myself a coach, which is just a, a fancy, there's sort of a, a specific kind of consultant, I guess, where it's, it's basically at the highest levels. It's a one-on-one kind of engagement, very high touch sales, high, reasonably high touch sales, very high touch delivery, and it extremely interactive, uh, but you know, priced accordingly. And you know, that's what I say I do. That's where I self-identify, but I also basically have an info product business. So I've got items at the bottom level of my ladder that are $29, $49 that are no touch sales, no touch delivery. So I just wake up and there's a bunch of Stripe put notifications on my phone that people bought a bunch of stuff. And it's just a completely different kind of feeling. It's a different kind of sale. It's a different kind of work because you have to deal sometimes you have to deal with refunds or technical difficulties with the download or I lost my password or you know it's so different uh, but it it feels really reassuring to have a, a lot of it's weird for consultants to suddenly go into a place where they have lots and lots and lots of customers thousands of customers you know where a thousand people you know up up until let's say 2015 I would maybe I had three clients in a year, maybe five, where now, you know, and those are clients, those are one-on-one consulting engagements or retainer engagements. Now I've got like a couple thousand customers, they're not clients, but people who have given me money for stuff and who, you know, are reasonably happy or at least didn't ask for a refund, you know? So the feeling of having all of those, that I can feel that trust. Like, you know, we're talking about trust and then go up the ladder. I can feel that these, this large, large group of people trust me. And when you're playing the long game, like over time, they're going to mature into a place where a, a farther up rung in the ladder suddenly becomes, 
you know, it become, the timing becomes right for them. And so yes. the, the feeling of having this really, for me, it feels huge. It's not really that many compared to like, uh, you know, whatever Nikes, <laughs> but, but it feels like a huge customer base to me because I'm used to mm -hmm. having like five. And mm -hmm. now if I have, I don't even know, I'm sure it's, it's in the thousands. I don't know what it is, but it, it feels like a safety net of some sort. Well, it is. I mean, because yeah. that's really that's what we're talking about. It's it is a safety net or or the flip side is it could be the opposite. It could wind up being, you know, and it doesn't happen overnight, but it could wind up being the driver of your business. Mm -hmm. So, you know, someone might say, oh, I really love doing that. My goal is to do more of that and work my way out of one to one consulting. The only one to one I want to do, which arguably isn't really one to one is speaking. Um, in, in other words, I don't want to get down into the details of a client specific situation. I want to really concentrate on my, my big idea, my message, and I want to get it out to a lot of people. Yep. And it's just, it, there's nothing wrong with any of those, um, product service ladders. It's just, you know, what is it you want to create? Um, and I would argue that you're always better off with multiple revenue streams rather than just one. That's safer, mm -hmm. um, you know, especially as a soloist, you want to have, a, you know, a little safety net, a little security, be working towards that. But any of these can work provided they're tied into your value in the marketplace. So elaborate on that piece. Well, um, you know, you have to I, I believe you have to pick something that you're passionate about. You have to pick something that you're really good at, but it has to be something that the market values or nobody's going to pay you. Yes. For it. OK, yes. Yeah, you can be passionate about um, cardboard boxes, right? <laughs> but if nobody wants to pay to hear your expertise, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, that's how I look at it. Yes. You raise a, a really interesting point, which is that I, I get this a lot from people where when they're first starting to build out lower rungs of their ladder, because they started with this Mercedes option at the top and they're building out things beneath it. And they're like, man, this is a lot of work to set up. <laughs> and, and, you know, and it's, it's not that much work, but it, it's, it's a lot more work than just being like, you know, putting, hanging your shingle out. Well, they're so, still doing their day job while they're doing this. Yeah. And when I say day job, I mean the consulting or freelancing that they're doing. Right. And they, and they start doing the math and they start thinking, man, I put, I put 75 hours into creating this, whatever it is, this program, this video course. Uh, and you know, if I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to have to sell this in there to do the math. Like, Oh, if I sell it at like a hundred bucks a pop, I'm going to have to sell this many to even feel like I'm breaking even on an effective hourly rate and da, da, da. And I'm like, you can't think of it like that. This is your, what you're creating is an annuity. It's a different kind of money. So you want to, like we said at the beginning, you want to be reasonably sure you want to have a reasonably high degree of confidence that someone cares about this thing that you're putting this time into. So you know, there are ways to mitigate the risk there. You can, you can have people early access people, uh, for free, go through a beta or they, you can get feedback from people or have beta customers that you give a huge discount to, to get feedback and testimonials about the thing that you're building while it's in progress. There are ways to do it, but it's a fair mm -hmm. amount of work. And, you know, you got to set up the payment stuff. You got to set up, you probably have some sort of email campaigns. There's all these things. There's a million moving parts. Mm -hmm. So it feels complicated, especially when it's new. It feels complicated. It feels like a lot of work. It feels like a waste of time. And it feels like it's never going to pay off because, you know, here's a common quote, you know, one client engagement and is a is hundred times more money 
than this <laughs> book is ever going to get me or this video yep. course is ever going to get me. And I'm like, okay, maybe. But once you do this, again, we're reasonably sure that there's product market fit here. Once right. you do this, you pretty much never have to touch it again. There's usually some minor maintenance. You might just send somebody, you know, in, in the EU an invoice or something, or there might be a bug in the software because of an update and you have to fix something, but you barely ever have to touch it again. And it just sits there making money. And that's right. sort of the make money online dream, right? But, you know, make money while you sleep. But it's you, you have to keep in mind that it's a completely different kind of money. It's like... Uh, it's just different when you when you switch to low touch delivery or no touch delivery it's uh you need to look at it in a different way it's a different kind of investment you're doing work up front to essentially it's like putting uh i'm gonna get the numbers wrong but i, I heard a financial person who is savvy with info products talking about a book that he wrote and he he self-published and he was making like a thousand bucks a month off it. So n nothing to write home about, but you know, not insignificant. It was, you know, it was probably mm -hmm. rent for an office or something. And he was like, I would have to have $500,000 in the bank to be making that kind of interest. Well, it only took me two weeks to write this book. It's kind of like uh, fast tracking your way to 500 grand in savings that you can't touch, but you know, that's in there. And all of a sudden like that, that, conversation sort of was a light bulb moment for me. I was like, oh, okay. Cause I felt the same way. I'm like, you kidding me? I'm going to sell this PDF at 49 bucks. It's never, it's like, it's <laughs> never going to be worth amount to anything, but it turns out you can do other things in your business that as your, as your audience grows, the profits or the, the income from those lower rung things start to go up. I don't know if it's exponentially technically, but they go up, they go up without you doing anything differently. So it can happen. And this is all getting back to what you said last, which is, which is it can happen that your second rung from the top turns into your most profitable mm -hmm. offering. And you can just chop that top one off and just be like, you know what? Forget it. I'm not going to do these one-on-one -on -one coaching things anymore. I'm going to be running these quarterly programs and, you know, price them and, and just do that. The the litter the the litter the internet is littered with people who at least say they're doing that. I say, oh, I'm not doing one to one coaching anymore, but you can do this group option or you can do that. They don't even offer it anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, like I'll, I mean, let's go ahead. I was just gonna say this is all about creating assets for yourself. And but the flip side of that is I think it's right to look at this as a different kind of financial asset. The flip side of it is you may have to change how you systematize bringing clients slash buyers into your world. And you may have to get more serious about it. You may not may you will have to get more serious about it. You'll have to create processes and procedures you know, some of us go, Ooh. but that's, that's what you need to do to make this work seamlessly. But once you get it, once you get that process down, it's pretty simple. And if you need to, you can hire somebody to help you with the administrative part of it. Yep. Right. Yeah. Which ties into our episode about solo versus firm. It's like, it's like you can be a soloist, but still have support staff or VAs or, but, but really you're still, it's really your name on the door. And exactly. not renting out your employees to other people. And it's a whole lot easier to hire a, an administrative person, a VA, than it is to hire somebody who has your technical knowledge and your way of consulting. A big time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, because you're not really in competition with each other in any way. It's like it's just no. Yeah, cool. So I'm a huge fan of this because f- the main reason I'm a big fan of of building, usually building down a product ladder from the top rung, is the sense of security that you get from it and being able to have something to offer to your your audience at every level, depending on how much trust they have in you, how much value they see in the particular offering, which can have a lot to do with their, their level of maturity, the business maturity, I mean, mm-hmm. and they might not be ready for your top tier offering, but they might be perfectly ready for something toward the bottom. And it, it can work relatively quickly and you can, it, but it's also great in the long game because people who are started at the bottom of the ladder with just a small degree of trust or need are just eventually, you know, a, a portion of them are just going to keep climbing. And it gives you so much visibility into your, you know, things like cash flow and the health of the business and, you know, uh, control over, you know, being able to step on the gas when you want to. You actually know where the pedals are compared to what most people I work with start out with, which is like, I don't even know how I'm in business. (laughs) I don't know where my customers come from. I live in constant fear that no one will show up next month. You know, I just, just totally feel like they've been lucking their way through it for five years or 10 years. Well, there's a category of people I call the reluctant consultant. I don't know if you've met anybody like (laughs) this. And, and typically they're, they've been in some corporate function and they were downsized for some reason. So they really, you know, in their core would really rather be inside a big firm, but they're not sure if they're going to get another comparable job. Maybe they can't move um, for all sorts of reasons. So they start this hang your own shingle out, but they don't want to invest any money in it. (laughs) Right. So it's usually, you know, Joe Schmo consulting and they call everybody they know. And the first year usually isn't too bad because, you know, people want to help you. And so in the first year, they'll send you a lot of referrals. And then by the second year, all of a sudden the referrals have slowed down and there isn't this There's a sense of urgency about it, but they don't really know what to do because really what they want to do is they want to do the work. They don't want to be selling. Mm -hmm. And so there's this conflict. And where I've seen, you know, reluctant consultants become quote unquote real consultants, happy consultants is when they start to realize that they can package their expertise in some of these different ways for their audiences. And they start to get excited about it. And those are the ones who never go back to corporate mm-hmm. they yeah, stay totally in it agree. because yeah they found a way to to recreate um the some of the security i would argue more of the security than going back into corporate if you have multiple clients and multiple revenue streams that's a lot more secure than one job with one company right and that's to me that's scary i agree but you know we're wired that way <laughs> yeah <laughs> to me that's terrifying <laughs> i could never go back I, I, I can't even count the number of people who look at me and go, oh, my God, why did you do that? Are you, really? <laughs> you went out on your own? Are you crazy? Um, yeah. No, we're not crazy. We're just wired that way. Yeah. All right. This was, I, this was fun. Yeah. Did we, yeah. Did we leave anything out? I think we were pretty thorough. I think we did. I mean, maybe we didn't talk about speaking quite so much, but I think I, I just think it's 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 still – not unlike consulting in terms of how you sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you market it based on the lower rungs of your ladder. People who read your books or participate in your programs are going to want to hear you speak. 
I would love to, could we do next week, maybe next week about that. I would love to focus an episode on speaking because that's something that I've always, uh, I feel like I still haven't cracked the code on that. Like I've done over probably a hundred, 150 speaking gigs and get paid pretty good for it, but nothing to write home about. Yeah, actually that's an understatement, but it's always felt very haphazard to me. And I would, ah. I think it would be fun to, fun to share. I, I would benefit from a, a more intentional approach to that sort of a speaking career instead of, cause for me, it was mostly just like a marketing thing. Like I would go out and do it and it got me clients and I would get, you know, I, got paid more and more over time. And it was nice extra money, but it wasn't my main income for sure. Uh, we we need to talk about that. Strategic speaking. That would be awesome. Yeah. Excellent. Let's do it. All right. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next week for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.